And God, we are so grateful for who you are and the fact that you interact and intervene in our lives in such amazing and profound ways that we certainly do not deserve. And yet you're anxious to do so. And you're anxious to do so in this service this morning. And you've proven that through this great worship, through the loving fellowship of people that have already experienced such, and hopefully through the teaching of your word as well. Just draw us to yourself in powerful ways and let us know you and uh, in, in just all your fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, everybody. So I'm Jim. I'm executive pastor here. Pastor Bruce is in West Texas. Uh, I know, huh? <laughs> he sent me a couple. I should have thought to put them up there. It would have been kind of funny. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so he sent me a video of West Texas, 30 seconds of him driving across the plains alone. And when I mean alone, he was alone in the car and there wasn't a, another car, another person, not any animals you could see. There were no living things where he was. Then he also showed a picture of the pastor's 10-year-old daughter who um, was out hunting, and uh, she secured a wild boar all by herself, 10 years old. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, good for her, good picture. So um, before I started, I wanted, you know, I was thinking every now and then, I hear from, you know, and I'm around students quite a bit, or their parents, I hear people talk about, you know, sometimes it's hard to understand uh, sermons in church. At this church, really, that's hard for me to understand because, I mean, we're not, we're not ground level, low shelf, but we try and teach clear from the Bible and simple enough for you to have something every single week that you can take away. And... Um, and man, we just, we just want to give you God's word. And there is a little bit of a skill to being able to listen. And it's like any other kind of teaching. If you're learning math, history, science, you know, you kind of learn how to pay attention. And in church, it's, it's not much different. Generally speaking, a sermon is going to have one crystal clear thought that a pastor's going through, uh, going for. Um, and the the points throughout that are supporting that thought. And very often, like today, I have four points. All four points, even though they connect, may not hit you. Maybe only one point is going to hit you. And let me tell you something. That's enough for the Spirit of God to use and work and move and change your life. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, we hope and we pray that the gospel's included clear enough in every single lesson we give that you can clearly see, even if it's just for a moment, the love and the grace and the forgiveness that God has for you. And if you know Jesus Christ, our hope and prayer is that there would be something that you can take away and change your life. That, and when we say change your life, I think sometimes when we hear that, we think monumental change. Well, changes, changing your life, especially as you mature, is less and less monumental throughout the course of a year, maybe. And those monumental moments happen. But what's, you know, what's the one thing you can hold on to? I would seriously encourage you to listen 
to any teaching, including when you read on your own and study on your own, and just have a pen. Underline scripture, circle, write notes, do something to reinforce your learning. Um, what we're doing in here, when we share God's word, what we have before us are no shortage of what God would tell us if he were here personally today. There's not a new message. There's not more. This is it. It's complete. He claimed it as so. And so we've got to receive it that way, and we've got to understand and maybe be sitting there and listening as if God himself were delivering the message. We're just tools of God's delivery of the, his message to people. And so it's, it's a proud privilege to be able to do so. I marvel that I have the privilege. Uh, I think about uh, my history growing up before becoming a Christian, and even since, I'm just so blessed, and I'm glad you're here uh, to share in what God's been showing me, and I hope, hope it's helpful to you uh, as we go through it. So over the last four and a, about four years, um, I've kind of drifted out of surfing and into riding a bike. I, I'm into cycling. And some people think it's kind of funny. Some people think it's super dangerous because, sadly, people do get injured or even killed on their bicycles. And so I'm the guy on the, on the road bike, you know, with kind of the race gear on and the skinny tires. How many of you would never ride the skinny tires? Yeah, uh, Pastor Bruce says, I would never ride the skinny tires. And I can understand why and stuff, but I really enjoy it. I'm into it. And I'm into it to the extent that, you know, I've spent money. I spent a lot of time. Uh, I was on the bike like two and a half hours yesterday. And, you know, and so you might marvel at me being on a bike. And I guarantee in the crowd this size, some of you do stuff that I would marvel at. And in the office, uh, what we've decided to say about people who we can't understand what they're doing or why they do it is, well, whatever you're into, that's what you're into, right? And so here's some of this. I, you can barely see to the left, I'm sorry, top left. That's from a movie, that's a shot from a movie called Free Solo. It's a documentary, it won just about every award known to man in movies for last year. Please watch it. It's nuts, but it's about a guy who free climbs, you can see him in red there, he free climbs El Capitan, he's the first person and probably will be the only person in history to survive doing it, he survives. And some people are into their experiences and they're really into them. This, he, he is so committed on a level that is just unbelievable and it's a fascinating, awesome movie. It's frightening, but you know he makes it. All right, no, you just know, they, uh, there was, it's not a spoiler. Every time I, he was on talk shows before the movie was released and everything. You know he makes it, he's fine. And it doesn't, it's not a spoiler. So there's that. Some people are into their, their collections. This guy on the bottom left has every converse known to man. And I know it's hard to see. The lady on the bottom right, those are shoes too. She has over 50,000 pounds worth, it's British, of uh, shoes. She has a lot of shoes. <laughs> and see, I'm telling you, whatever you're into, that's what you're into. You might be into your house. This guy was, you might remember this water tower. 
uh, down in Sunset Beach is still a house. You can rent it for $4,000 a week if you want. You might be into that. Because whatever you're into, that's what you're into. And you can spend that money and you can remodel whatever, however many hundreds of thousands of dollars it took them to build that thing. Because whatever you're into, okay, next slide. I mentioned I was into cycling. So is that guy on the bottom left. <laughs> you might... <laughs> <laughs> I love that picture. Oh, gosh. Hey, you might be into fashion or you might be into bears. Either way, we got you covered. Uh, that is uh, Jerry Seinfeld's car collection up on the top right. I believe he's trying to collect, I'm not sure he's achieved it or not, but I believe he's trying to collect every year of every car Porsche ever made. Uh, there's a few Porsches in there. There's Mercedes and Jaguars. There's all kinds of different things. You could be into food. These guys obviously are. So whatever you're into, right? Whatever you're into, that's what you're into. And here's something that God wants us to know. Everybody in the room. For the very best you could possibly know or experience, these are all great things. There's nothing wrong with any of them. None of them are sinful. It would be sinful for me to try and own that many cars. Jerry Seinfeld's a multimillionaire. He could probably double that garage and it wouldn't tickle his bank account. But here's what God wants. God wants us into God. He wants us to be so into him, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he gets accused of being selfish for doing that prideful, arrogant, like why in the world would he want that love? You know, that's a very selfless reason why God wants us into God. And it's not to boost him personally. It's not to make him stronger. It's not to make him feel like he's got one million or 20 million thumbs ups from people. He doesn't need our approval. He doesn't need our power. He doesn't need... Here's why, because when we lift God up, when we're into God, when we love him, when we know and do his will, other people see it, and they're drawn to him. And he knows that. Jesus said, if I'm lifting up, I will draw all men to me. God knows that, and so he calls us to glorify him. He calls us to love him because the more we do, the more we provide opportunities for people to look up and see him. And so we talk about what we're into, and we talk about God's will. The Bible, the New Testament says there's six things that is God, God's will for people. The first thing that's, and this is just introductory still, the first thing that is God's will for people is that they be saved. After, before that, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't uh, had your sins forgiven by him, if you haven't turned your life over to his direction, nothing else about God's will matters. That's all. The, Peter said, for God's slow, is not slow concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering. He's patient toward us. He's not willing that any should perish. And so he's calling people to himself all over through all different kinds of means. Because the first and most important thing God wants for you today is that you be saved. 
After we're saved, he wants us to be spirit-filled. He wants us to be sanctified, set apart for him, living lives that are different than the rest of everybody, living lives that are different than how we used to live. He wants us to be submissive, and he wants us to possibly suffer, and all of us do to varying degrees. And then he wants us to say thank you. And those are the six things the New Testament say are God's will, but how do you live in that? Like, it's not about doing those things once or twice a day. It's the, the hope and the goal of our Christianity is to have a character, to live life from the inside out, and to be people of God, to be people who are recognized, hey, that person belongs to God. There's something different about them. Well, how do you do that? How... What, what can fuel that in you? And if you look at a very familiar passage, I think there's a great how-to in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to read it to you in the ESV. It's going to be on the, on the screen in the NLT. We'll look at that in a second. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore... Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so in the NLT it says, don't copy the behavior. Wait, that's two. I got them backwards in the slide. That's my fault. There you go. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Next one. Don't copy the behavior of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. How do you live in God's will? Because ultimately, this is what this passage is about. You will be able to discern what the will of God is. You'll be able to tell what it is. And why would you need to do that? Well, so you can live it out. And the first thing Paul says is that, he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, therefore, anytime you see a therefore, you gotta see what it's there for, right? Every preacher in the world, you've heard say that. And the therefore is the first 11 chapters. And what he says, he doesn't say remember the mercy of God, he says remember the mercies of God. And what I see in the first 11 chapters are God's mercies in a profound, powerful way. Here's something that I was, I was taught in college, and I didn't buy into it when I first heard it. It took me a few days, maybe even a week or so, to really believe what my pastor was telling me at the time. Um, but I thought about it and thought about it and really believed it's true, so much so that I've taught my kids the same thing. And so you might resist this a little bit. Please just cooperate for now and think about it later, and we can talk. If you want to dispute it with me, I'll be happy to sit down and talk with you. But I believe what I was taught, and it's been a conviction in mind, that all of us in the room and everybody in the world today, no matter what state we're in, even if we're redeemed, we deserve hell. 
that God would be justified, in my opinion, for me, based on what I've thought and what I've done and what I've said, that if he even wanted to break his promise and take away my salvation, he would be justified in doing so because that's what I deserve. But Paul says, hey, figure out this fact. Live for God based on his mercies. And I found, I found a bunch, but I'm going to share ten. And there they are. And they all are rooted in the gospel, the good news that in spite of the fact that God could send me to hell today if he wanted, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I'm supported by a God who loves me so much that he chooses mercy over justice. And he shares this good news. And so here's kind of my top 10 mercies from Romans 1 through 11. God's patience and judgment. He doesn't judge us. Like, you know, people imagine God is up in heaven with a bolt of lightning coming out of his finger. Every time somebody does something wrong, he's not that. He's so patient. And we deserve that punishment from God. We deserve hell. But Jesus took that for us. He took it. He willingly, lovingly takes that punishment. It's simply amazing. We don't have to work and earn our salvation. All we need is faith in that work of Jesus Christ, Christ's magnificent sacrifice for mankind. I'm going to read a passage about that. As believers, once we put our faith in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. There's a certain opportunity. There's a very definite opportunity to be free from sin. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody deserves judgment. Everybody deserves punishment. But Jesus died for all. No matter how far away from God anyone might be, Jesus died for everybody. When we come to Christ, there's now, therefore, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's none. There's nobody. God's not looking to condemn you. It's over. Your condemnation was absorbed by Jesus Christ. All through Romans, words like justified, reconciled, propitiation, adoption, they're all used to describe the relationship that we have with God because how Jesus canceled our debt of sin. And in spite of the fact that we don't get it right, that we're not perfect, we can never be separated from the love of God. And I just marvel, if you turn back just a few chapters to chapter five. Six little verses. Within my opinion, certainly no more profound an impact on reality of who we are compared to who God is, what we can have, then it's just astounding. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's one of my favorite verses. You know, by the way, just a little side note, you don't like getting calls from salespeople. They call and you know it's a salesperson. If it's not a robo call, which are 95% of them anymore, but if you got a person and you don't really want to talk to them, just quote Romans 5.8 to them. At least you're giving them the gospel. And they don't stay on the line long. But I just think of that verse. But God, even though while we were still sinners, Christ died. While we were still sinners. Coming to Christ doesn't clean up, get better, get richer, get smarter, get anything to improve. It's in the middle of your deepest, darkest, most corrupt self, Christ reaches out to you in love and says, follow me. Man, I don't deserve that. He does it anyway. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And chapter 8 talks about adoption. We're in the family of God, and we don't deserve it. And so what fuels our knowing and doing God's will are his mercies. And if we keep our eye on that, the difficulty of living a new life in Jesus Christ, because it isn't easy, the difficulty of living a new life in Jesus Christ becomes a little easier, if not a lot easier, because we just are fueled by that love of God. And so we want to remember his mercies. Number two, if we're going to know and do God's will, we've got to resolve to follow Jesus first and foremost. See, he sacrificed his life for us, and it only makes sense that we would live our lives for him. And it says in here that it's an act of worship that we sacrifice. We're living sacrifices. And what that means, people like to talk about all what it means. It just means that your full-time life is devoted to Jesus Christ. Because where your body is, your mind, will, and emotions are. You are. Let me ask you a second, something, silly question. As long as you're alive on this earth, when are you living? Forever. Every second of every day, offer your body a living sacrifice. As long as you're alive, as a Christian, you live as a living sacrifice. Every second of every day is to be devoted to Jesus. Every second of every day. Why? Because of the mercies of God. But we resolve to follow him. And we think about we're, we're loving God, we're worshiping him out of what we've been given not in order to get. You know, in the pagan world, you sacrifice any number of various things, and the motive is to do a trade with whatever God they might be worshiping. I'll give you 
this pile of grain. I'll give you these animals. I'll burn these candles. I'll do this work so you can bless me. But we have all the blessing we have in Christ. We sacrifice, we give because of what we already have. And it's part of us living in that upside down kingdom of God. Our religion all over the world requires sacrifice in order to get. Committing to live God's will is a singular, full-on, resolute commitment. The world is full of options for you to believe, follow, and worship. Full of options. Celebrities, teams, Marvel or DC, coffee, music, cars, fashion, Buddha, atheism, nothing. And look, Mike Trout just signed that gigantic contract. (laughs) He makes enough money to play for all the teams, but he plays for one. You don't work all the jobs, you work yours. You don't love all the spouses, you love yours. You don't parent all the children, you parent yours. And you can't follow all the gods, all the philosophies, all the religions, you follow Jesus. And that's a resolution. That's a commitment born out of your soul the same way you've committed to your job, your spouse, your kids, but deeper. You have to resolve. You have to make a resolution to follow God no matter what. He said he's the way. He's not a way. He's not one of many. He is the way. And we like to kind of play games with what we involve ourselves with and we, and we cloud the air with options of our heart and our devotion. And he takes away that for us very clearly in the great commandment when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There's not supposed to be divided allegiance, divided affection. We follow God and we follow him wholeheartedly. We're passionate about following him and if you wanna know and do God's will, you have to have that within you. So can you point to a time at any point in your life, let alone in recent history, where you just said, no matter what, I'm following God. Like, no matter what. I remember mine. It happened right there. We used to call people to the altar for commitments all the time. And the youth group would sit over here. And Pastor Mountain was talking, and he was calling for a commitment. Will you live your life for God? I was 18 or 19 years old, and I prayed right there, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I will follow you. Have you ever made a resolution like that? Because you cannot know or do God's will consistently. You can't live it. Paul says, I beg you to present your body. You've got to make a presentation. You've got to, and the, the sacrifice imagery there is that There's a lot of things in the world I'm giving up. And I'm going to follow God even if it costs me friends. 
I'm going to follow God even if it costs me approval on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And, you know, we kind of laugh. I, I just think that's actually so much bigger a deal than, now than it was in the 80s, obviously. And we're in this new culture. You guys all understand it's new, right? Like, we're, we're, this, we're the tip of the spear on this techno stuff, and the kids are struggling their way through it, and we're struggling our way through it with them. And it's really, it's, a, it's an interesting time. And the approval of culture and the world and popularity and all that just matters so much right now. And it's so meaningless. Like people literally live day to day for how many of these they get. Like they seriously. From people they don't barely know or care about. we got to follow God and not worry about getting thumbs down or unfollowed. we got to follow God. And to do that, to be these kind of people, we're going to remember what God talked about, his mercies. And we're going to make a resolution. When you get saved, that's a certain kind of resolution. That's a, I'm turning my life over to you, my eternity over to you. But now, man, I, I just think after that, at some point, as mature disciples, we got to make a commitment, similar to like what Peter had to make when Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times. He asked him three times, and I just basically think he was asking him, is this for real? Are you serious? Are you resolute? And at the end of it, Peter said Yes. And he went on to be one of the greatest Christian leaders of all history. So we're going to remember, we're going to resolve, but we're going to renew. You have to renew your mind to change. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, be changed. It's interesting that it says conformed, because just four chapters earlier, Paul said that God's will for you, that his desire for you, his calling for you is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we have Christ, we have Jesus, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Jesus. We have Jesus the servant. He said he did not come to be served, but to serve. He's a forgiver. And all the things that Jesus is were to conform to that image. And almost all of them run counter to our human wiring. Almost all of them run counter to our human wiring. I don't want to forgive. I want you to feel pain. If you hurt me, I want you to feel pain. Isn't that justice? You hurt me, I hurt you. I sure don't want to be patient. Ladies and gentlemen, we went to Mexico last week, and the car I was in was in the line at the border for 10 hours. In line at the border. And I'm proud of everybody in the car, and then the van was up in front of us with another eight people, and I'm proud of everybody in the van. We had Christ-like patience. 
honestly, it's miraculous because you would think everybody would be back. I'm never doing that again. That was the worst experience of my life. I can't believe I just did all that. And no, people say, I'd do it again. That's only Christ. And so what happens is you've got a certain frame of reference as a human being. And when you become a Christian and when you want to live the Christ life, you're changing your frame of reference. On the top left is T.J. DeFalco. He'll be the second-year player of the year at Long Beach State. He's a phenomenal volleyball player. He's been jumping that high since he was like 14. He's a stud, and that's indoor volleyball. And below him is Phil Dahlheiser in the Dahlheiser, can't say his last name. That guy in the white, and he's playing beach volleyball. And I've played both, and it looks like they're the same exact game but they're not. And you have to totally change your mind to go from one to up to the other. And that's what you do, especially as you're growing up through you know, high school and college, you play both. And so you can't play by beach rules. Obviously, you got different surfaces, different atmosphere and stuff. You got two man, six man. Just the rules are different. It's a totally different frame of reference, but they're both volleyball. And so here we are. We live these lives. We live a human life, and we live a spiritual life. They're both life. But the frame of reference that we are supposed to be living under is God's frame of reference. We renew our mind by getting into his message, the word of God. We program. It's the programming manual for living the spiritual life. We program, why do I got to be in the word? Why can't I just, you get into the word so that when you face those daily dilemmas like Coke or Pepsi, ducks or kings, (laughs) relational dilemmas, moral dilemmas, fear or faith dilemmas, integrity, family, friends, neighbors, politics, whatever it is, You get in the word so you have the right frame of reference to live in the spiritual so that you can draw from God's word and you can sit at the border for 10 hours and think that the Bible says be patient, be long-suffering. That's 10 hours. Is that long? Long Long-suffering. And we need the word of God to come into our soul so that we can be like Christ. John 14, 6 didn't just say that Jesus is the way. It also said that he was the truth. The Bible is the embodiment of what Jesus is. It's the black and white description of Christ. It's us learning Jesus so that we can be like him. And if we're not in this word, when we face those dilemmas, we won't know what the will of God is. And if we don't know what the will of God is, guess what? We won't do the will of God. In John 17, Jesus is praying as he's getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, sanctify them in truth. Set them apart. Make them what they're supposed to be. Make them Christ-like in truth. Your word is truth. And so we got to be in the word, and the pastors are saying that all the time. And people think that they have enough of it because they hear a sermon or they listen on the radio. No, 
Paul told us all later that to study to show yourself approved, a worker that does not need to be ashamed. You know what happens when you get in a situation where there's a conflict, where there's a dilemma, and you choose your way instead of God's? There's shame. I couldn't share it if it happened, but could you imagine if instead of long-suffering on that trip, even just one person, but let's say the whole van load just protested, started throwing rocks, breaking windows, what are we doing, the government stinks, painting signs. That's shameful. But how different is it to show up and be able to give praise to our Lord for taking a group of people and letting them graciously endure eight and a half to ten hours. The, the van waited shorter somehow. I don't know how. Wait at the border. And so we come into these dilemmas in our life. They happen all the time. Don't they happen all the time? And you wonder. We don't have to wonder very much And less and less, the more you know the word of God and what you're striving for. Listen, Christian, here's what you're striving for. is not eventful Christianity, where sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. You want a character-based, inside-out Christianity that just is normal and natural and flows out of you because you're so well acquainted with Jesus and what he thinks and what his will is. And so when you face those things, you can take a verbal pause or a mental pause and think, I wonder what the Bible says about this. I wonder what Jesus would do. And what happens when you ponder these things, you reveal your ability to discern God's will because you're in the, the word, reveals God's word to you. And when you know God's will, you can perform God's will. How do you do God's will? You have to know it. You have to know it. And what will happen as you discern, you'll be able to figure out good, bad, right, wrong. And you will, like this verse says, you will prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. You prove it to yourself. And more importantly, you reveal it to the people around you. It's hard to understand. It's hard to believe. We don't feel qualified. We don't feel adequate. And you're not. You only are as you commit to these things of God, as you remember his mercy, as you resolve to follow him no matter what, as you change your mind when you think, know, and do the word of God. You show him off to your family, friends, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, strangers. And even if it's just a glimpse, let people look at your life and look up and see God. And don't stop there, by the way. It's not enough to just live for God. We're called to also share that message. But the message of Christ, our witness, loses its power. And we all know this. Our message, our deliverance of the gospel, 
verbally loses its power if it's not backed up by a life committed to knowing and living out the will of God. I want you to know this goes beyond evangelism, though. Your influence to other Christians, your influence in your home to your kids, you want to reveal God's good, perfect, and acceptable will to your children, right, parents? You can't do that well without living it out yourself. Grandparents, Sunday school teachers, servants on the campus, we have to live out this gospel. We, church, have to live a kingdom-centered, king-submitted life We have to know and do God's will. And when we do, we are inviting people to look up and see God. And so I want to invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and just think. Just you and God. And I know every time we preach a service, there's some people in this room, some of you maybe have sat in church service after church service after church service, and heard the gospel, whether it was in glimpses or in piles, and you've just resisted it. I'm wondering if maybe today you caught the mercy of God for you. If you caught the possibility that God loves you so, so, so much, that you would be willing to follow him. That you would change your mind that you can handle life without him. That you can handle eternity without him. And that you would turn your life over to him today by simply praying a prayer with me that goes like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I've lied, I've stolen, I've cheated, whatever it is. And I want to ask you to forgive me for my sins and come into my life today. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And for the Christians in the room, certainly many of you have made resolutions to follow God no matter what, but some of you may not have. Could today be your day? Could today be your day where you put that stake in the ground that says no matter what, no matter how let down you feel, no matter how much pain you've experienced or might experience, no matter how much you might need to sacrifice, in view of how much Jesus has sacrificed for you, you would, you would say to him right now, God, no matter what, I'm following you. And then if corporately we would just be a church family that would commit to knowing and doing God's will over and above our own, over and above the world's, that we would just determine to shine the glory of God to a lost and dying world. 
And God, any of this that you've invited us to participate in, we certainly do not deserve, and we are grateful. So grateful. And we know we're not worthy, but you want to use us anyway. So where we're weak, make us strong. Show up strong on our behalf. Make a difference in our lives, and may the gospel just shine forth from us as individuals and from this church and change people's lives for eternity. And again, thanks for the opportunity to be involved in those uh, efforts. And uh, just bless our time now and uh, bless this offering as we give it. In Jesus' name, amen.